The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or NC State student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1 FM HD1. Thanks for listening. Theater might seem like a dying art in this era of online videos and movies, but there are still places where the art of performing in front of a live audience holds strong. The struggle to make plays innovative, critical, complicated, yet entertaining is tough, and not a lot of theaters try it either because they won't be as profitable or it's just a waste of time, but it hasn't stopped the Burning Coal Theater Company. Now this company is entering its 25th anniversary season and producing literate, visceral, affecting theater that is experienced and not simply seen. They use artists from all over the world and produce plays to the tune of Overlook Classics, modern classic, and new plays that address important ideas to the community of Raleigh with minimalist production values and high energy. Today, I'm sitting down with artistic director Jerome Davis. He is the founding artistic director at the Burning Coal Theater Company. He studied with legendary acting teacher Uta Hagen for seven years and also studied with Nikos Sykaropoulos and Julie Bovasso while in New York City. He is joining me today to talk about the upcoming 25th season of the company and its progress from how it started to its sustainability as it continues to entertain and impress the masses. Artistic Director Davis, welcome to Eye on the Triangle. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my first question, I would like you to tell our listeners more about your role as it stands currently. Um, uh, role as Artistic Director of Burning yeah. Coal Theater Company, sure. Well, um, uh, as it stands currently, uh, nothing is, is assured, uh, you know, and I'm sure you're having that same experience. Uh, our plan of action is to go forward with a season of plays, um, as we always do, uh, we have selected uh, three of the four plays that have small casts so they can be rehearsed more safely. Um, and uh, the fourth show, uh, if we get to next April and, um, and the pandemic is still with us, as I suspect it may be, then we will do the fourth show outdoors. It's a larger cast show, but we'll rehearse and perform it outdoors. And that should provide a level of safety that will uh, help people to feel feel better about the process. Uh, we're also going to make each of the productions live streamed as well as um, live. Uh, so you'll have the option of being uh, with us in person or in two dimensions, which is not quite the same, but uh, but it's something. And so we, we decided to make that option uh, as well. And then we're doing a lot of little events, like we have a, a play over in the Oakwood Cemetery that we do every year. Um, and we are doing that this year. It'll be outdoors, obviously. Um, and I like to say about the Oakwood Cemetery plays, it's a, a grave undertaking, um, but uh, people are dying to get in. So, <laughs> sorry, I can't resist those puns. <laughs> no, that, that's good to hear actually. Uh, so obviously this is your 25th anniversary season. Congratulations, by the way. That's that's a good feat. Thank you. We're still walking upright. Uh, could you tell the listeners more about how it began? From what I understand, you were a founding member of yeah. uh, of the the theater, and just what innovations and changes were made to help it grow to where it is now. Sure. Um, my wife and I met in New York City. We were both living there. Um, I had been. Uh, working since I was really a teenager toward uh, having a career in the theater as an actor and a director. But I knew that eventually I wanted to start my own company. 
and uh, I knew that the, the cost of real estate is so prohibitive that someone of my, you know, somebody who isn't named Rockefeller or Trump uh, is not going to be able to afford a building in New York City. And so the choices were rent, uh, you know, all the time and uh, spend all your money on rent and none of your money on the art or move somewhere else where um, perhaps the art was um, less in abundance and, and more needed. And so we decided to do that. And we got very, very lucky in that uh, as soon as we got here, people started saying, oh, there's this old, this great old auditorium at the Murphy School, you should go take a look at it. And we did, and um, we were told that nobody had ever turned it into a theater uh, recently since the school closed back in 1977 because the building was full of asbestos, but the building was built in 1908 and they didn't have asbestos back then. So uh, we were like, huh, asbestos, that's interesting. Uh, and so we looked around and sure enough, with one very small exception, a part of the place that had been renovated, uh, there was no asbestos at all. And that made it uh, cost uh, favorable to us. So we started raising money. It took us seven years to do it, but we raised a million and a half dollars in cash and probably just about that much again in in-kind contributions from people like uh, Greg Paul, who was our contractor, Lewis Cherry, who was our architect, Curtis Casebang, who was the consultant who helped us uh, figure out where everything went, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. And so um, with people like that, Mary Hart Paul, Greg's wife, who also worked on the architectural uh, team, um, all of those people and many, many others uh, pitched in and, and allowed a company who at that time had a budget of about $300,000 to raise a million and a half dollars um, in cash and, and that much again in in-kind contributions. So we raised about 10 times our annual budget uh, in order to to achieve this space and and it's beautiful. You know, people walk in and just their jaw hangs open, you know, when they see it. Uh, so we, we got really lucky uh, that there was such a space and we got lucky with all the very talented people who were willing to pitch in and help us uh, turn it into what it is today. How many actors do you have currently employed at your company? Do you, well, do you know? No, a the theaters typically don't do that. There are a few companies, uh, in quotes, companies still in existence uh, in America. One is uh, the Trinity Repertory Company in Providence, which I had the good fortune of working at for a season when I was, uh, when I was acting more, um, uh, but very few others. Most companies um, hire, they do what's called jobbing in. So they, they bring in an actor for this show, and then they uh, after the show's over, they say goodbye and hopefully bring that actor back sometime in the future, but it's not a full-time capacity. And so now we have a small staff and then on a show-by-show -show basis, we hire actors um, and it depends on the show, obviously, but we do everything from one person shows to, you know, we did a, we opened the building here at the Murphy School back in 2008 with a production of Inherit the Wind, uh, which had 24 actors in it. So, um, so we have we have done pretty big uh, projects and pretty small projects and everything in between. So I'm interested to know what makes this theater company and its play something that it's experienced and not simply seen. I've uh, seen that was one of your your slogans that you put on your site. And then what inspirations did you take in consideration as you try to think about doing this and turning into reality? 
Yeah, that's a that's a really good question, uh, and it's uh, it's not easy to articulate. But I want to start with the building itself. Um, we do uh, plays in uh, what's called a thrust configuration, which means there's an audience on three sides. Uh, it's not uh, audience on one side and actors on the other side. It's uh, you you not only watch the actors, but you also watch your neighbors watching the actors, right? And so that creates more of a sense of uh, community, I think. I also fought very hard to make sure that we had a balcony in the space. We have a very high ceiling. Uh, uh, the lighting grid's at 17 feet. And uh, so we had just enough room uh, to put a balcony in on those three sides as well. And so when the theater's full, and it often is, um, you will feel like the, the audience is almost hanging over the edge of the balcony listening to the play. It's, it's almost like being at a boxing match or something like that. And it creates a very dynamic, um, experience for the audience. Um, one of the one of the problems with uh, film or television or uh, digital media is that you know, uh, no matter how artfully those things are created, and and I love film and television, but no matter how well they are created or good they are created, you know that the actor is never going to come closer to you. Right, the actor is always going to be separated from you by that screen. Um, and in the theater, an actor can be 20 feet away and then walk toward you. And now he's five feet away or he can go sit next to you in the chair, uh, tap you on the shoulder, whatever. Um, we don't do much of that during the pandemic, but it is possible to do. And you as an audience member know that it's possible. You know that that you are literally in the same room as the actors. And I think that creates uh, uh, more of a sense that, that, act, that the actors are part of the human race uh, and not some exotic animal from some other place. You know, when we watch films, we sort of have a tendency of thinking, well, that's, that's those people over there, you know. But when you're, uh, when you're in, a, in a theater, especially in a thrust theater, um, the, it is very clear that the actors are part of the same group that the audience is part of. Um, and, and frankly, that is how theater was done for most of human experience. If you go back to the, to the ancient Greeks, they had an amphitheater, which kind of wrapped around the stage, the, the Globe Theater in London and the other theaters that Shakespeare worked in all had audiences on three sides. Um, sometimes I would even sit on stage um, and, uh, and on and on until we developed this thing called electricity and we were able to move the theater indoors. And then for some reason, we started wanting to put it in a box, you know. And so a lot of what you grow up with uh, in high school or college is, is what's called proscenium theater. And it is a box in the distance. You sit in the dark. You don't look at your neighbors. You look only at the actors. And, um, and it creates a sense of distance that I don't think is helpful, frankly, in our industry. Um, I think it would be much more helpful if the audience thought of the actors as part of their community in the same way that they think of the barber or the butcher or the baker as part of their community. And then could you talk a little more about the plays that you're doing this season as one that I saw was I and You written by Lauren Gunderson? That's oh, yeah. about a, a teen stuck at home with debilitating illness. I'll, I'll let you go more into it, but 
Could you sure. uh, talk more about it? I don't want to give too much away because it's it has a it's one of those plays that has a sort of a spoiler alert thing. If you if you give that away, you give away a lot. And so I don't want to go too far into it. But I will say we started rehearsal on uh, Tuesday of this week. So two days ago three days ago? What day is it? It's Thursday, isn't it? Uh, um, and um, we have a wonderful young director from London, uh, Lucy Jane Atkinson, who has come over to work on the show with us. Uh, Lucy is a very experienced and talented uh, director. Uh, it's a two-character play about two teenagers, two high school kids. Um, the, the, the girl is very sick. Um, and one day while uh, in her bedroom, you know, sort of um, uh, trying her best to stay connected to the world through digital media, uh, a boy from her school shows up, uh, a member of the basketball team, a young African-American guy who she doesn't know. He, he, they've never had a conversation even, you know, she knows who he is because he's on the basketball team, but, but that's basically it. And she's like, you know, why are you here? How, and how did you get past my mother? You know, my mother doesn't let boys into my bedroom. Um, and, um, and he tells her that he's there to help her uh, with a homework assignment um, and uh, the play evolves from there, and um, it's very beautiful, very funny, uh, as Lauren Gunderson's plays tend to be, and, uh, and ultimately just incredibly touching, a moving piece of theater. Uh, it's about 90 minutes long, a little bit less than that. Um, and uh, people will weep. They should bring Kleenex for this one because it's a real uh, tearjerker, but it's also uh, remarkably light and funny and I think a good play for now. Then we're going to do my one of my two favorite plays ever is a play called The Road to Mecca by Ethel Fugard, the South African playwright. Uh, that's another lovely small cast play um, set in, uh, in what's called the Cairo, which is a, a desert in South Africa, uh, and it's a, basically about a, a, a true story about a woman who very late in her life after her husband died, decided that she wanted to be a sculptor. And she started sculpting and creating these bizarre, bizarre objects that she started putting all over her house and all over her yard and, and how the community that she lived in, the small uh, rural community reacted um, to her um, artistic expression. So um, uh, another beautiful, funny, and, and ultimately touching play. And then we're going to do a rare thing at Burning Coal, which is a comedy, uh, a play called Art uh, by the French playwright Yasmina Reza. And Art is, uh, we're going to, we're casting it with three African-American men, middle-aged men who are members of our company. They've all acted with us before, but they've never acted together in something. And and um, it's very, very funny. And it's it's about three friends, three middle-aged friends, one of whom decides on the uh, spur of the moment to buy a very abstract piece of art. Uh, it's just a white canvas. Um, and uh, you would think this might be good for a few laughs or whatever, but it causes their friendship to do things that they didn't expect it to do. And so it's a very interesting play. It's about art. Uh, but it's also about friendship, uh, and I think it's going to be really interesting to to see what um, what that story is like if you uh, in, uh, if you put it into the African American community um, of the 21st century. So, so that's uh, another uh, play that I'm really looking forward to. I love those three actors: Juan Isler, 
um, Preston Campbell and Byron Jennings are their names. And then we're going to close the season with um, The Life of Galileo, played by Bertolt Brecht, the German. So we've got a German, we've got a French, we've got a South African, and we've got an American playwright. So quite a diverse group of writers. Um, and uh, of course, Galileo is about the great uh, uh, physicist and um, inventor who uh, dared uh, to to butt heads with the church and the state, and um, uh, it's a it's a really interesting and uh, important piece of theater. And we're probably going to do that one outdoors if the pandemic stays around. Well, I hope you can do that. Uh, so, from what I understand, though, is most of these plays are not like something that you would see at a more, at a more main theater. Like some of them are overlooked. Some of them are just like stuff you you probably find like if you really started reading about that playwright or that author or maybe that actor for that matter so um what is like how do you do how what is the allure of doing some of these plays in a new way that maybe and maybe like showing them the people who maybe have never experienced this kind of play before yeah i think that's that's right uh, we try to do two things um jonathan we we try to either do new plays that, and tell new stories that people are not familiar with or um, we try to do stories that they are familiar with, but do them in a new way. Um, and um, I think it's just a, a question of empathy. You know, um, you know, Bob Dylan has a, had a guitar that said, um, this machine kills fascists. Um, well, I think theaters ought to um, have a sign on them that says, this machine builds empathy. Um, and that is what they do. They, when you walk into a, a theater, you, you are entering another world and you're meeting people and having experiences that you wouldn't otherwise have. And so we've never, I've never been that interested in plays that, that talk about my life or um, the lives of people who, who are like me. I've been more interested in plays that look at the lives of people that aren't like me. Uh, and certainly these, these plays uh, really fit that bill. Um, I was a teenager once, but I can't remember it. <laughs> you know, it's been so damn long ago. Pardon my swearing. Um, but, uh, but, you know, to, to go to 1600s uh, and visit uh, Galileo's world and, and just ask yourself the question, what would I have done if I had been in that situation? You know, that's how empathy is, is built. Um, to imagine yourself one of those three middle-aged uh, African-American men uh, dealing with the abstract painting and art, you know, that's, a, that's an extraordinary um, building of a, of a muscle, the muscle of empathy that, uh, that human beings need to build. And I fear does not happen in two-dimensional form, in digital form. I, I, I doubt that there's much empathy building, um, you know, when you're staring at your phone or looking at a computer or something like that, uh, because you know, again, you know that you're not in the room with those people. And the closer you can get to being in the room with them, the more likely you are to be able to imagine yourselves in their footsteps. So now I'm gonna turn the clock back a little bit and going back into like the middle of the pandemic. And as one, as you may expect, many businesses had trouble staying open. Yeah. Many people kind of had trouble finding jobs or are out of jobs. And, yeah. you know, everybody was kind of just stuck at home, kind of like wondering what, what's next. And then 
what I was curious about, especially with your burning coal theater company, is like what did the company do specifically to help both its stability and the stability of its actors in order to keep afloat during this unpredictable time? Well, uh, last year, um, you're right, uh, that was a, a significant concern. We had, uh, uh, last year, we had a one-person show scheduled for our opening slot, and so we didn't have to change that uh, play, um, but what we did do is we limited the audience to only four people a performance, so it was a real boutique sort of thing, um, and people felt safe doing that. You know, if they knew there were only going to be three other people in the audience, then, then they felt safe. Uh, one actor, three, uh, four people, and we tripled the number of performances. We did uh, 36 performances instead of 12, which is our normal thing. Um, and then um, we had two shows after that that both had large casts, and we cut those shows out of our season and replaced it with two one-person shows uh, by the African-American writer Dale Orlander Smith, and we did those live each night in the theater, but we didn't have an audience. We just uh, streamed them, you know, so they were being done every night here live. And if you wanted to watch them, you could watch them on your television. And But you would know that that it was happening over at Burning Coal, three blocks away or wherever, you know, wherever. So, so that helped to cut our budget, obviously, but also uh, helped to make the actors, the stage crew and the audiences felt, feel safe. And then we closed the season outdoors over at the Dorothea Dix Park with a production of Evita, uh, the musical, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. And we did that over, um, over at the Dorothea Dix Park in a, an abandoned uh, prison for the criminally insane, um, which uh, seemed like an apt setting for something like that. And, um, and we had a huge response. People came out in droves to see that, uh, see that production. So. So we're possibly going to do that again with Galileo this year. So, so basically just being safe uh, with our, our own people, but also with the audience, and then finding ways to, to spend less money on the productions. Of course, the bad part of that is that there are fewer jobs for actors. You know, if you cut a cast of 10 down to one, obviously nine, nine people don't have a job at that point that did have one otherwise. So um, there, were, there was good and bad in that, but it did allow us to stay afloat and not have to close our doors. So I guess one question I have that's kind of important and kind of abstract is uh, how important is social interaction to you, especially in a profession where you basically you're, you're on a stage and you're interacting with people, obviously. So in a, in a time when, you know, basically it's kind of hard to interact with people where you have to live stream, how is that lack of or maybe need for social interaction um, either enhanced or, or limited? Well, I think it's why people come to the theater. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to stay on your couch, you know, uh, and uh, see what's on Netflix or Amazon or whatever tonight. It's much easier to do that. Um, but, but people still do it, you know. Um, you can see, a, a, just to pick a different venue a football game you can see a football game much better on television 
um, than you can in the stadium, uh, especially if you're sitting in the seats that I can afford, you know, which are way up high. But uh, but people do it anyway. People buy those tickets. They traipse out there. They spend an hour and a half waiting to get in and two hours waiting to get out of the parking lot. Uh, they pay ridiculous amounts of money for a hot dog and a, a, a soda. Um, but, and they do it because they want to be there. You know, they, they want to be in that space with other people. Um, and I don't know why that is, but I know that it is. You know, I know that that's a, a fundamental human need uh, to be with other, other humans. And, and the theater is one of the few remaining uh, venues where that can be done. You know, uh, it, it, restaurants are great, but you don't really have a dialogue with everybody in the restaurant. You know, uh, if you're watching a play, you're, even though you're not talking, you know, hopefully, uh, but you're, you are having a dialogue with both yourself, your partner, whoever came with you and, and the rest of the audience as well. And, um, and I just think people need that. I think they, they need it because, um, because without it, um, you know, we're kind of lost, you know, it's, it's the way you, you know, we don't know anything, you know, we don't know why we're here. Um, we don't know what we're supposed to do while we're here. You know, we're just sort of on this rock floating around in space and, and, um, and maybe we get a little closer to those answers when we uh, engage with other, other people. And then as we, as we enter back into more normal interactions between the audience and the actors, as we enter more to like normal society or back to where we used to be, is there anything you're looking forward to the most? And then and like, what would you say is the importance of actors interacting with the audience after the play? Cause I've noticed that when reading your site that you had like luncheons and like you have backstages where you have, like you actually talk to the audience about the play. So what do you think is the importance of that? Well, um, people are curious. Um, uh, I, I ultimately, I think that a work of art should stand on its own. You know, that, that if, if you need a program or a lecture or a video um, in order to understand the play, then we haven't done our job uh, fully. But um, what you need and what you want are two different things. And, and people are curious, you know, um, uh, I'll give you a, an example of the kind of things we do. We, we have a series uh, called our uh, lobby lecture series, and we bring in people who are kind of either people who've worked on the play in the past or, or uh, maybe just experts. And so, for instance, we had, um, we had Jerry Friedman uh, at our production of Hair. Uh, Jerry uh, Friedman was, was teaching at the School of the Arts over in Winston-Salem at the time. And Jerry was the director of the original production of Hair in 1967 when it opened at the Public Theater in Lower Manhattan. And um, so he had a lot to say about the play and about the history of the play um, that really just helped make it uh, more educational, I guess, for people. Um, we've had um, authors, we've had college professors um, we had a scholar when we did Henry V. Um, we had a scholar come in and talk about how the, you know, the Henry V ends with this miracle. You know, it's a, you have to describe it as a miracle. They kill ten thousand of the French, 
and uh, only lost 26 of their own soldiers, um, even though they were outnumbered three to one. And apparently this really happened. And uh, so this historian came in and said, well, here's, here's how that happened. You know, he explained what, what the circumstances were of the Battle of Agincourt. You know, the play doesn't explain that. It just shows you that it happened, but it doesn't explain how it happened. So, so those kinds of things are, are helpful and interesting. Um, but ultimately, I think the most important thing is uh, what, what happens on stage. And then um, as we head toward the end of this interview, I kind of want to ask more about the future of the Burning Coal Company. And that includes like uh, kids, young men and women are interested in performing for a living because I understand you do camps. And then you, uh, you have people coming from all over the world and then you have new people out allowing to uh, submit scripts. So like, what do you think is the future for burning the Burning Coal Company? And then should other theaters try what you're trying as well? Well, I think a lot of them do. Um, um... I think the the future for burning coal is to continue to develop um, relationships uh, around the world. Um, it's very easy to get stuck in a rut, you know, in any walk of life, but uh, especially in the arts. Um, you know, it's very easy to do the same plays over and over again, work with the same people over and over again. It's just safe. And it's, you know, you know, you're going to have a success if you do this well-known play or work with that well-known director. But, um, but, but growth is not as uh, possible there. And without growth, you stagnate and then the work you do stops being meaningful to people. So, uh, what I hope will be the future of the company is continuing to grow relationships um, in, in as many uh, and as diverse uh, communities as, as possible. Um, and by diverse, I mean age, uh, I mean uh, race, I mean geography, um, you know, all of the above. One of the things we do in this country that's, that's got to change is that we exclude most of the people in the country from the creation of art. Um, and that's because of economic circumstances. You know, right now, because there's so little funding for the arts, the only people who can really afford to work in the arts are people who have, you know, fairly wealthy parents, you know, um, and, and that can give them a foothold in the, you know, in New York or Los Angeles. And so the, what this amounts to is if you have 100 people in a room and you tell 95 of them to leave and then you turn to the other five and say, OK, let's make some art. You know, maybe you're going to come up with something great. And, and sometimes we do miraculously. But but what would it be like if the other 95 also got to participate in that process? And so a thing that I hope we can be a part of going forward is um, is providing a, a nurturing home for people um, who, um, who can't afford to, to go to New York and pay you know, $2,500 a month for a 500 square foot closet to live in, you know, and all that in, goes with living in a big city like that, all the costs. Um, and then maybe uh, if they get a foothold here, then, then they will know whether they really want to do it or not. And, and uh, then uh, perhaps they'll be, uh, um, you know, ready to move on to a, to a bigger city. 
so I hope that we can be a, um, a launching pad uh, for, for young people and for people who otherwise have not been given or have not had the opportunities to, um, to work in, in this most critical uh, industry. And then uh, before you go, could you tell the listeners more about how to contact you and your theater company and what social media they could find you on and learn more about this anniversary season and the opportunities that you are currently having? Yes, absolutely. Our website, which is new, we just put a new website up, is burningcoal.org, O-R-G. We're on uh, Facebook. Uh, You can just enter Burning Coal Theater and you'll find us there. We're on uh, uh, Twitter a little bit, uh, um, and we're on Instagram, and um, we also have a YouTube channel, um, but uh, we have podcasts that we do, which can be found on Podbeam. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to get the word out as, as much as we can using those, uh, those mediums because uh, they're cheap uh, and they're uh, common, you know, they're ubiquitous. And um, so, um, so you can, uh, you can post things on them and thousands of people will see it that uh, otherwise wouldn't be able to know about you at all. And that didn't used to be the case 20 years ago, you didn't have that option. So that is something that's happened that's really good. The bad part about that is that everybody else is using it too. So it's a lot of noise, you know, that you have to shout over in order to be heard. Um, but uh, but we're, um, we're, we're on all those things. But burningcold.org is the website. And that's the place I would start uh, if you're interested in our company. For sure. Well, I'd like to thank Director Jerry for joining us today on Eye on the Triangle. It's my pleasure. Uh, keep keep up the good work, and thank you for having me. Music in today's episode was Sailing by Delicate Steve through the YouTube audio library license. Thank you for listening to the episode today. If you want to listen to more episodes, go to wknc.org slash podcast, as we have new episodes coming out every Sunday. This is Johnson Eigman reporting for Eye on the Triangle, signing off. <laughs>